Well, good morning. It's good to be with all of you here at Gospel of Grace. Thank you for the lovely worship. It is an honor to be here to preach the book of Matthew to you. Now, dear ones, last week we had learned that Joseph, by extending mercy to Mary, uh, without which Jesus would have never have been born, and we learned that not only did he extend mercy to Mary, we learned that he had the privilege of naming Jesus by which Jesus ended up being adopted into the family as a true son of David. Now, this week, we're going to be learning that Jesus Christ, in the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14, is fulfilling a prophecy written some 730 years in advance. And we're going to learn today the fact that Jesus Christ fulfills hundreds of prophecies that were given hundreds of years in advance is absolute proof of all of Jesus' messianic claims. But we're also going to learn why it is it was necessary that Jesus Christ would come in the flesh. And we're going to learn that he had to become a man so that he could be our new representative, that you and I really could have forgiveness of sins and the absolute assurance of everlasting life. But what I want to do today is I want to begin in verses 21 through 23 straight away for the sake of time. And I want you to realize that I'll be backing up to verse 21, even though I covered that last time for the sake of context. Now, remember, as we look at verse 21, you have the angel of the Lord revealing to Joseph that Mary will have this son. It says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, stop there for a moment. We get to verse 22. Matthew now comments on this. He says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now, here comes Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, dear ones, I want you to note here in verse 21, I did talk about this last time, but I want you to realize that the naming of Jesus was significant because Joseph was able to name him. He is like an adopted son. And this is how Jesus is adopted, as it were, into the family of David. Joseph is of the lineage of David. Jesus is legally now of the lineage of David. And Jesus' very name is very significant. Why? Because his name literally means Yahweh is salvation. And so if you combine the fact that Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation with the title that he is going to receive in Isaiah 7, 14, Emmanuel, God with us, we are clued in on the mission of this Messiah, which isn't to give us our best life now or to bring about justice here and now. That will come in the kingdom, but he comes to forgive us our sins. That's the reason he became a man. Now, I want you to notice here in verse 22, Matthew says something that's very bold. He says that Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy written 730 years in advance, Isaiah 7, 14. Remember, the term fulfill is one of Matthew's favorite terms. And I talked about in our introduction that Matthew understood three different types of fulfillment. I'll go through that in a couple of slides. But what I want you to have is a generic definition of what does Matthew mean by Jesus fulfilling prophecy. And what you have to understand is that Matthew understood the person and work of Jesus Christ to be the fulfillment or the goal of all of the messianic expectations presented in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the prophets and the writers explained who the Messiah would be, where he would come from, and what he would do. And so Jesus, to Matthew, is the fulfillment of all of those expectations. He is the goal to which the Old Testament was pointing. Now, as we transition into verse 23... I want you to take note of this term that I have in the box, the term virgin. Matthew is quoting right from the Greek Septuagint. That was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And he's using the term parthenos, which in his day always meant virgin. But I want to clue you in on a little debate. For about 150 years, scholars have wrestled with whether or not Isaiah originally intended to say virgin. And the reason why is Isaiah originally penned Isaiah 7.14, by using the term Alma. And for, for about 150 years, scholars have said, well, Alma, where it means a young woman of marriageable age, it does not necessarily mean that she was a virgin. 
So scholars have claimed that if Isaiah had intended to say virgin, he would have used a different term, namely betula. Betula in the Old Testament always means virgin. That's the claim. But alma doesn't necessarily mean that. Well, that recently has come under attack, that view, by a a linguist named Christoph Rico. And by the way, in your handout, you're going to see a link to an article. I highly advise that you read that article. It was written by a professor, Peter Gentry. And he cites this Christoph Rico, who did exhaustive work in linguistics, looking at the etymology of this term, Alma, that Isaiah used for virgin. But he also looked at how the term was used in the Old Testament. And let me share his conclusions briefly. What he found was, yes, sure enough, Betula is a term that always means virgin. That is correct. But it's a virgin of various ages. It could be a young virgin, a middle-aged virgin, or an old virgin. But what he found in an exhaustive research is that Alma, yes, it also means virgin, but it specifies a young virgin. And that's perhaps exactly why Isaiah chose it. 730 years later, it wasn't just any virgin who conceived Jesus. It was a young virgin, just as specified by the prophet in advance. Now, let me make this statement. I want you to think about under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew chose the term parthenos, which always means virgin. At least it did in the New Testament period. So here we're given divine commentary by an apostle who speaks authoritatively for Christ as to how this term should be understood. Let me give you an analogy. Remember for many years people wrestled with what does Genesis 6 mean when it talks about the sons of God going into the daughters of men? I used to believe that the sons of God was the godly line of Seth. The problem with that view is that we're given divine commentary in Jude 6 and 7 that says, no, the sons of God is a reference to the angels. So I'm not left wondering what they are. I'm told what they are in Scripture itself. That's the way I think we should understand Matthew's usage of Parthenos for virgin. He is giving us divine commentary on how Alma should be understood, that it really was a virgin birth that was predicted. Now, notice the term Emmanuel that I have highlighted in blue. One thing many people have realized over the years is Emmanuel certainly is a great description of what the Messiah would mean for the people of God, that God is with us. But what we have to understand is Emmanuel is more than just a description of what the Messiah means. It is a description of the person himself, Jesus of Nazareth. Because as this baby boy is born in a manger in Bethlehem, we really have God incarnate. God really is with us in Emmanuel. And he comes, again, not to give us our best life now, but he becomes a man to be our new representative so that he could pay the sin debt that we couldn't, but he could live the perfect life that we could not, so that we can have forgiveness. That's why he came. Now, I want to talk about this identity of Emmanuel in Isaiah. One thing I would suggest to you is it's hard to understand what Matthew is saying if we don't understand Isaiah 7.14. So I'm going to take some time this morning and go through that prophecy. But I want you to realize that one of the debated issues in the prophecy is the identity of the Emmanuel character. Let me explain the debate. Some think that there was a preliminary Emmanuel character in Ahaz's day, that is in Isaiah's day. Okay, and that would be someone like Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Talk about having a name that says, kick me, right? If you go to kindergarten and your name says Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, by the way, it means swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And it was a sign. It was a sign to the Israelites and to the enemies of God. So some think that that the Emmanuel character was preliminary there was a preliminary fulfillment in Maharshal al-Hashbaz, but the ultimate fulfillment was in the Messiah. But what I'm going to show you is that the only person in history that could meet all of the criteria for what Emmanuel is, is the Messiah. Now, the first thing you have to realize is Isaiah uses the term Emmanuel three times. Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 8.8, 8, and Isaiah 8.10. 
And when you ask the question, who can this be referring to, the only person that can fulfill all of the criteria, written 730 years in advance, is Jesus of Nazareth. Let's begin with Isaiah 7.14. If, if I'm right in the research of this linguist, Christoph Rico is right, and Alma meant not only a virgin but a young virgin, who was the only one that was ever born of a virgin in the history of the entire cosmos? Jesus of Nazareth. It's the only one. Does anyone else know of a virgin birth? Somebody was born of a virgin? No. He's the only one. Now, you're going to see this gets more intriguing as we go. In verse 15 of Isaiah 7, we see that this Emmanuel character is going to learn obedience. Now, that can be maybe said of others, but who is it that earned and lived and learned true obedience without fault? The Lord Jesus Christ. And what you see in Isaiah 7.15 is he does this while under foreign occupation. And sure enough, when Messiah is born, he's not born under a united monarchy or even a divided monarchy. He is born into exile with Roman domination over the land. Has, as it says in Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Part of the suffering of the Messiah was living under Roman domination. Notice when we get to Isaiah 7, 16 through 25, whoever this Emmanuel character is, he lives under oppression. Again, he doesn't live in a united monarchy. He lives with Roman domination. That fits very nicely with the life of Jesus Christ. Again, you're going to see this become more obvious, though, that this has to be Jesus of Nazareth as we go. When you get to Isaiah 8, 8, Whoever this Emmanuel is, he's the owner of the land. In fact, it says that the Assyrian army would come like a flood upon your land, O Emmanuel. Who is it that owns the promised land? Is it any man ultimately? Well, I would say it's the Messiah himself who is the owner of the promised land. Emmanuel, whoever it is, he owns the promised land of Israel. When you get to verse 10, Emmanuel is used again, and this time he's going to stop all the aggressors who are plotting against Israel. Now, this occurs one day in the millennial kingdom, but let me ask you what man is powerful enough to stop all the aggressors against the promised people of Israel? Well, only the Messiah is. Only Jesus of Nazareth can fulfill that identity. Fast forward to Isaiah. 9 verses 1 through 2. Remember in Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, the great promise was that even though the people who lived up in Galilee, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, even though they were the first to receive the destruction by the Assyrians, why? Because the Assyrians came from the north and they lived in the north. But what God promises is a reversal in Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. Those who were first to receive the destruction, the people of Galilee, they would be the first to see messianic salvation. And so that's why it says those in Galilee, those who were sitting in darkness, they have seen a great light. And Matthew says in Matthew 4.16 that that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Why? Because where does Jesus of Nazareth begin his messianic ministry? It's in Galilee, an exact fulfillment of Isaiah 9.1-2, but it gets better. Who is this Emmanuel? Well, notice whoever he is, He's truly God and truly man, revealed in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Remember that great passage. There's going to be a son born, a child is going to be given to Israel, and the government will be upon his shoulders. But he's not just a man. Why? Because he's also called El Gabur, mighty God. Truly God, truly man, in one person. That's who Emmanuel is. Well, there's only one person in the history of the planet who's truly God, truly man. Jesus of Nazareth. And finally, we see the same thing when we get to Isaiah 11, 1 through, 2, or 1 through 10. Rather, Let me pull up my pointer. Notice whoever Emmanuel is, he's a shoot of Jesse. By the way, the term Jesse is a fancy way of saying David. Why? Because Jesse is the father of David. So the idea that Emmanuel is going to be a shoot of David means he is a man who comes from the lineage of David. But notice he's not just a man, he's also the root of David, the source of David, the originator of David, the creator of David. He is the God of David. Well, how can someone be the God of David, but also a descendant 
who is a man that comes from David. The only person that can be truly said of is the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. Brothers and sisters, the only one who can fulfill all that is said about this Emmanuel character is Jesus. And so do you see then we are on firm footing to say Isaiah 7.14 really was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, just as Matthew has stated. Now, remember when I talked about in our introduction, there are three different ways that Matthew understood fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Sometimes he saw just a direct one-to-one relationship between the prophecy given and the event fulfilled. A good example of that is Micah 5.2. 715 years in advance, it was predicted Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Voila! Go to 4 BC, New Testament, where is Jesus born? Bethlehem. Direct fulfillment. Now, there are other types of fulfillment, though, called typological fulfillments, where you have a pattern that is set in the old that finds its fulfillment in the new. A good example of that was the quotation of Hosea 11.1 by Matthew. Remember, that passage says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, what that means is in the Old Testament, God protected the son by bringing him out of Egypt. But in the New Testament, it's cited where he's being protected from Herod by being brought into Egypt. But the type of protecting the son in the old is ultimately fulfilled in the protecting of the son in the new. That's the typological fulfillment. Now, the other type is what we call an application of Old Testament words. I think there may have been a twinkle in Matthew's eye as he called Jesus the Nazarene, which means he's a brancher. Why is that important? Because it was promised that the Messiah was the branch of David. And where does he grow up? He grows up in Nazareth, Branchville. The branch of David grows up in Branchville. Isn't that a beauty? That's an application of Old Testament words. So here's the question. How does Matthew understand the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14? And I'll put my cards on the table. I used to think it was a typological prophecy. That in the near term in Isaiah's day, there had to be a fulfillment of an Emmanuel-type character as assigned to Ahaz, who's the king of Judah. But the greater fulfillment and the ultimate fulfillment was found in Jesus Christ. And by the way, there may be truth to that. That son, as I mentioned, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, is born in Isaiah 8. But the article that I have, and again, it's linked in your, it's, you can find it in the back page of your, your handout, by the professor Peter Gentry has challenged my presuppositions, and I've now changed to a certain degree to think this is more of a direct prophecy. And what I want to do is share with you how to interpret Isaiah 7. In so doing, I think we're going to see the grandeur of just how magnificent this prophecy really is. So let me set the stage with you and explain the context historically of Isaiah 7. So just relax, put your trays in the seat, in the seat backs into the upright position. I'm going to take you on a flight here. Let me just welcome you to relax and enjoy this. I want to transport you back to the year 734 B.C. And the situation in Israel, particularly Judah, was that there was a man who was a Davidic king who reigned. His name was Ahaz. Unfortunately, Ahaz was an unbeliever like so many, unfortunately, of the Davidic kings. Now, Ahaz had a crisis. And the crisis that was threatening Judah, and particularly him, was that there was a growing enemy of a coalition of two nations that were against him. There was the northern tribes called Ephraim. By the way, they were called Ephraim because that was the largest of the northern ten tribes. They were against Judah, but they had combined forces with another nation called Aram, what is modern-day Syria. And the reason they wanted to crush Judah is because they were angry that Judah didn't belong to their anti-Assyrian coalition. And so they threaten that they're going to wipe out, literally, and it says in Isaiah 7, 6, they're going to tear apart Judah, and they're going to install their own king. What's the problem with that theologically? Didn't God make a promise that if the Davidic king would trust in him, he would fight on their behalf? Yes, it's the only country in all of history that has the theocratic promise that if they will trust in Yahweh, he will fight on their behalf. So Ahaz... Davidic king on Judah has a choice, trust in Yahweh for protection or trust in man. 
What does unbelieving Ahaz do? He trusts in man. He trusts in an alliance with Assyria against Ephraim and Aram. The year is 734 BC. Ahaz is out checking the water supply of Jerusalem. Think of it like a movie scene. He's checking the water supply. Why? Because there's going to be an imminent invasion. And lo and behold, God providentially sends out Isaiah to confront Ahaz. And in Isaiah 7, I'm paraphrasing, but Isaiah says to Ahaz, you either trust in the Lord or you won't stand at all. And then he asks Ahaz, he says, the Lord has given this to me. You can ask of any sign you want. Make it as high as heaven or as low as Sheol. You can ask for anything. And all of a sudden, we pick it up in Isaiah 7, 12, and notice Ahaz, who was an unbeliever, who's already made arrangements with the Assyrians, who has no inclination in trusting in God, feigns or pretends he gets religion. Listen to what he says. He says, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Stop there. All of a sudden, Ahaz, he's saying, I won't test the Lord. I won't ask for a sign. Well, the Lord is telling him he can. In reality, the reason he doesn't want a sign is he has no inclination in trusting in God. He's already made his bed, as it were, by trusting, with, trusting in man, trusting the Assyrians. Now, notice how infuriated Isaiah is on behalf of the Lord. He responds, verse 13. It says, then he said, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? He's infuriated by the false piety of Ahaz. Now, I want you to note here in the text, I want you to notice that, isn't it interesting, Isaiah addresses Ahaz, this king, singular, as the whole house of David. Why? Because what is true of Ahaz, sadly, is really true for the whole lot of them. Since Solomon on, the Davidic kings have been characterized by sin and unbelief pointing forward to the need of the ultimate Davidic king, Emmanuel, the Messiah. But I want you to see something very important for our interpretation, seeing that this may be a direct prophecy. Notice the you. I assumed originally that the you must be referring to Ahaz until I looked at the grammar. It's actually second person plural. It's referring to the house of David. So from this point on, Isaiah is addressing not Ahaz as an individual, but the whole house of David. It's an indictment, but also a sign, this Emmanuel sign for them. So we pick it up in verse 14. That's very important that we realize this is an address to the whole house of David. Isaiah 7, 14, he continues through 16. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. In other words, it doesn't matter if you don't want one Ahaz, you're going to get it, right? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land which you are tearing apart will be forsaken of the presence of her two kings. Now, the first thing I want you to note here is notice in verse 14, the you again is second person plural. Why is that important? I normally don't do this. Don't attempt this at home. I'm going to back up my PowerPoint. If you're not a trained professional, you cannot do this. <laughs> I'm not a trained professional either. It'll probably go bad. But here, the you is second person plural here. And again, it's referring to the house of David. That's important. Why? Because it's second person plural here. Why is that important? Because the sign wasn't given just to Ahaz. It was given to the whole house of David. And this, for Professor Peter Gentry, you can read his article is evidence that, yes, we didn't have to have necessarily a fulfillment of Emmanuel in Ahaz's day. The sign was for a wider group, the entire house of David for all time and forevermore. And therefore, some 730 years later, if the sign in Jesus came then, it's acceptable. Now, note then, also, what did we conclude about virgin? Yes, that Alma not only means virgin, but a young virgin. This starts to specify that that only can be fulfilled in one man, namely Jesus Christ. But what does it mean in verse 15 that he's going to be eating curds and honey? What in the world is that all about? Well, there are two choices if you unpack this. Eating curds and honey is either a sign of abundance or it can be a sign of eating 
in poverty. And we know it's the latter. Why? Because when you get to Isaiah 7.23, we won't read that. But it talks about briars, thorns, and thistles growing. This is poverty. In fact, listen to the great Professor Peter Gentry of Southern Baptist, formerly, now he's at Phoenix Seminary. He said this regarding the curds and honey. He said, quote, he said, Therefore, a person reduced to eating curds and honey is a person in exile, not a person enjoying the good life. In the case of Jesus of Nazareth, this is fulfilled in the fact that the country was dominated by foreign overlords and in exile before the boy reached the age of accountability, unquote. Let me ask you this. When Jesus is born in 4 BC, is there a great Davidic monarchy reigning over the throne? No. There's a puppet Idumean king named Herod, a former Edomite, the enemies of God, placed on the throne over Judah by the pagan Roman government. Jesus is not born into prosperity, but into poverty. And again, this is fulfilled literally in Jesus Christ. Now, let me explain the coup de grace in this interpretation. It revolves around verse 16. Notice what it says. It says, before the boy, and again, the suggestion here is this must be Emmanuel. Before Emmanuel will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, he's going to be very young. The land which you are tearing apart will be forsaken of the presence of her two kings. Who's the you there? By the way, the, what you see italicized is Peter Gentry's in a translation of the verse. Well, the you there is Ahaz, and he's tearing apart the promised land because of unbelief. And so the idea here that's promised is that when Jesus is born, they're not going to have two kings, a king over Judah and a king over Israel. They'll all be gone. You're only going to have pagan kings. Now, our other choice, our English versions say not that you are tearing apart, but they say that you are fearing. And that changes the whole meaning of the text. The, the meaning of the text would be the land is no longer the promised land, but the land of the enemies of Ahaz. And the two kings would not be the king over Judah and the king over Israel, but the two kings that are threatening Ahaz. Now, let me tell you why I think Peter Gentry may have a point here and why this could be a direct prophecy. One of the reasons why is, notice first of all the term land. It is singular, showing a unified land. That's probably not going to be used of the enemies of Aram and Ephraim because they were two distinct lands. It probably should be understood as the promised land. But more importantly, the term tearing apart is certainly the preferable reading in Isaiah 7, 6. And I think what God is doing is he's doing a play on words. In Isaiah 7, 6, what did the enemies of Ahaz boast in? The king of Aram, the king of Ephraim. We're going to tear the promised land apart. But now what God is showing down in verse 16 in an inclusio is it's ultimately not the enemies of God that are tearing the promised land apart. It's you, Ahaz. Ahaz, because of his unbelief, because of his unwillingness to trust in Yahweh and instead trusting in man, is tearing the promised land apart, so that when the Messiah, the greater son of David, is born, he's not born in prosperity, but under foreign domination and in poverty. Just as foretold 730 years in advance. Brothers and sisters, what Matthew is saying to us today in Matthew 1 is that 730 years prior to the birth of Jesus Christ, it was predicted and it is fulfilled in one person, Jesus of Nazareth. I want that to fall weighty upon you. But that is how precise the scriptures are. And so we continue in Matthew where it says in Matthew 1, through 25, it says, And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. I want you to notice here that Matthew does two very important things. The first thing that he does is he receives Mary as his wife. Remember, before it was revealed to him by the angel, he thought she must have been cheating on him. But he takes her as his wife 
and does not divorce her or have her stoned is the law called adulteresses in Deuteronomy 22. But not only that, notice he also has the privilege of naming who Jesus is. And by naming Jesus his name, he's adopting Jesus into his family as a true son of David. Now, we also see the second big thing that he does is that he kept her a virgin. He did not have any physical relations with her. Why? Because in Jesus of Nazareth, we have the complete fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, written 730 years in advance, where this Emmanuel, God with us, would be born not only to a virgin, but to a young virgin. That's the specificity of this prophecy. Brothers and sisters, notice at the very end, he calls him Jesus. And again, that tips us off as to what Emmanuel's mission is. What is the mission of God with us in the flesh? To save us from our sins. It's not to give us our best life here and now. It's not to bring a glorious kingdom yet here and now that will come. He comes at the first coming to save us from our sins. Okay, now let's get to some applications. I have two points for you here this morning. Number one, we must know that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy proving all of his messianic claims. Now, I want you to think about the fact that Jesus fulfills over 300, and I think it's 333 if I remember right, prophecies that are historically verifiable. Now, remember, the odds of one man fulfilling just 48 of those prophecies is 1 times 10 to the 52nd power. It's amazing proof. And what I'm going to share with you is this is proof that every single person has to wrestle with in the world today. Number two, we must know that the incarnation of the Son of God was necessary for our forgiveness of sins. That's why he had to become a man, to be our new representative. Okay, let's begin with this idea that Jesus fulfills Old Testament Scripture because, again, it serves as great, powerful evidence for us who believe and for those who don't. In Matthew's gospel, he is very clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament was teaching about the Messiah. And remember, when we come to Old Testament prophecy, the prophets weren't just giving us haphazard predictions, but rather they were teaching messianic doctrine. Who the Messiah would be, where he would come from, and what he would do. And so we have to really wrestle with how does Matthew understand this? Notice Matthew records Jesus saying in Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Now, there's a common Christian interpretation that I've heard in Bible studies where this passage is used for Jesus not coming to abolish the law of Moses but to obey it. Now, realize that is true of Jesus, but that's not Jesus' point specifically here. It's tangential, but it's not his point. Because I want you to note that Jesus doesn't say that he came to obey the law, hupakuo, but rather fulfill the law, pleiroo. What Jesus is saying is that whatever the law and the prophets is, he is the fulfillment of. Now, that begs the question, what is the law in the prophets. Well, the law and the prophets is shorthand for the entirety of the Old Testament. I want you to remember that for the Jews, they had a three-part division of their scriptures. We often abbreviate it Tanakh. So think of the, the acronym TNK, Tanakh. They put uh, vowels in there, but the T is Torah, the first five books. Then you have the Navaim, the N is for the prophets. Then you have the Kathavim, the K, which is for the, the writings the law, the prophets, and the writings. But oftentimes, they'll shorten it to the law and the prophets. So when you see the phrase, the law and the prophets, or the law or the prophets, it's a reference to what? The entirety of the Old Testament, the scriptures. So Jesus then is saying, do not think that I came to abolish the scriptures. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Do you know that the Jews in his day, whether it be the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, the religious leaders, They declared that Jesus was standing against the authority of Scripture. Why? Because Jesus was the prophet that Moses had prophesied would come in Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses said in Deuteronomy 18.15, 
that the Lord would raise up a prophet like him from amongst the people of Israel. And if the people wouldn't listen to him, it would be required of them. And so Jesus shows up on the scene of history, and not only does he do what Israel could not, he goes to the wilderness, he succeeds in 40 days where they failed in 40 years. But remember, Israel in the wilderness, they went to the mountain. What does Jesus do in Matthew 5? He goes to the mountain. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, why? Because he's the new lawgiver. Moses has been abrogated. And there's a new sheriff in town. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And he is the mediator of the new covenant. And so they are accusing then Jesus of standing against Scripture. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm not standing against Scripture. I am what the Scriptures pointed to. A great way of thinking about this, don't turn to it, but jot this verse down. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. This is a good way of thinking about fulfillment. Do you remember there, Paul says, do not let anyone judge you with respect to new moon festivals or Sabbath days, for they are a mere shadow, the term in in Greek, skia, but the substance is Christ. The shadow of the Old Testament pointed to the reality that made the shadow, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is what the scriptures were pointing to and teaching of, who the Messiah would be, where he would come from, and what he would do. This is why, notice here in Matthew 11, 13, Jesus is defending here John the Baptist, and he says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Notice the phrase, prophets in the law, that's the Old Testament scriptures. He's literally saying, for all of the Old Testament prophesied until until John. The until is very important there. Peos means just that, that there was a termination point. John the Baptist was the one who was foretold in those very scriptures of the Old Testament who would pave the way for the Messiah. We see it in Isaiah 40, Malachi 3.1, Malachi chapter 4. Who comes on the scene when Messiah comes? The messenger who prepares the way straight for the Lord. The Elijah-like figure who comes. And so John is coming on the scene of history and he announces what? Messianic salvation, the arrival of the Messiah. Therefore, the Old Testament has found its fulfillment and its goal. Brothers and sisters, Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Now, this is particularly important, I think, because in the early 2000s, it became very in vogue to try to claim that the Old Testament was not overtly messianic. In fact, when I was in seminary, I had to read a book by a man named Peter Enns. He was a professor, and he claimed that the Old Testament wasn't messianic, but rather it was New Testament Christians reading into the Old Testament the idea of the Messiah after the fact. Well, brothers and sisters, I raised a little bit of a ruckus about that one because that's not what the data suggests. In fact, I want you to hear from Jesus himself. And before I put this passage up, I want you to think, first of all, what did we see in Isaiah 7:14? We saw a prophecy written 730 years in advance teaching a very specific detail that the Messiah is born of a virgin, not just a virgin, but a young virgin. But what's more, when Jesus and his resurrected body is on the road to Emmaus with his disciples, do you remember in the end of Luke? Do you remember he's in his resurrected body? And his disciples are moping. They're standing in the presence of Jesus. They don't recognize that. And they're moping. Why? Because their Messiah, he was crucified. And so Jesus has to explain to them from the scriptures why it was necessary. I'm, I'm sure he went to Isaiah 53, although we can't be sure what text he used. But right after he says that, notice what the text says, Luke 24, 27. Again, Jesus in his resurrected body with his disciples. It says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Again, let's look at this. Moses Moses is shorthand for the law. The law and the prophets is shorthand for all the scriptures. Does everyone see that? So Jesus' claim is that all the scriptures are about him. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to read in to every single verse, Jesus. Do you remember hearing the old joke in Sunday school? The Sunday school teacher says, children, I'm thinking of a little creature. It's got a bushy tail, and it's got little legs, and it climbs up and down trees, and it gets acorns. And the little girl says, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I'll say Jesus. Right? Because you have to be spiritual in Sunday school, right? Well, we don't have to do that with the Old Testament. We don't have to find Jesus in every single term. 
But the point is the entirety of it, the law, the prophets, and the writings, they were pointing to him. Think of it this way. We see this. The more you see that, yes, Jesus taught in the Old Testament, the more you see it. Let me give you an example. I mentioned it today in Sunday school. By the way, it was a great Sunday school. Please pick up the recording. Thank you, Bob, for giving us the gospel. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, Peter cites Psalm 1610 that the Holy One would not be left to decay and his body would not be abandoned in the grave. And Peter says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking the very words of Christ, that David looked ahead. Remember, David is the one who wrote Psalm 1610, a thousand years before Christ's first coming. Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, said David looked ahead and he spoke of the Christ. Do you know how powerful that was? Because when Peter said David knew, David knew that that text wasn't about himself. It had to be about the Messiah. They knew that that was true. Why? Because David's tomb was with them in that day. And he was rotting it up. He was decaying in the tomb. And all the enemies of Christianity had to do was provide a body of Jesus Christ and say, well, he's in the tomb too, and he's decaying, but they could not. Why? Because the tomb was empty. Brothers and sisters, David wrote about the resurrection of Messiah. So says the apostle Peter, who gives us the very words of Christ. Yes, the Old Testament is messianic. In fact, we learn this in our studies in 2 Timothy. Remember in 2 Timothy 3.15, what does Paul say to Timothy? Well, he's known the gospel from his grandmother and his mother. But how and what text of scripture did they use? Notice he says, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice the phrase, the sacred writings. What writings? There wasn't the New Testament completed yet. It was the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures were able to make Timothy wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the Old Testament really did teach the doctrines of who Christ would be, where he would come from, and what he would do. And to me... This gives a very powerful application for two groups of people, unbelievers and believers. By the way, that's the only two options you have. <laughs> it's everybody. Everybody. For the unbeliever, what does this say? It says that if you won't believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he fulfills hundreds and hundreds of historically verifiable prophecies, there's no excuse for you. At the end of the day, you're just fooling yourself. And if you only fool yourself, you're a fool indeed. But ultimately, those who don't believe in the evidence, do you know what they're really doing? They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit that provides the evidence of who Christ is and brings people to faith in him. But remember Jesus, and we'll talk about this later in Matthew, if you won't listen to any of the evidence that the Holy Spirit gives, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, a sin that will not be forgiven. Unbelief is a sin if persisted in until the day you breathe your last is a sin that will not be tolerated by the Holy One of Israel. Now, what does this say to us as believers? It says to us, and I, by the way, I've talked to a lot of people in the last few weeks who've really felt the stress of what's going on in the world. And I thought of the words of Winston Churchill when I thought of this passage, what it means to me as a believer is never give up. Never give up. No matter how things look in your world, no matter how bleak your personal situation is, no matter how you've botched it, maybe in sin, or perhaps your church has botched it, a teacher that you love has botched it, maybe the country that you love has botched it, what you learn here is Jesus Christ will never botch it. Never give up. Your faith in Jesus Christ is well-placed. Why? Because he has proven over and over through all the predictive prophecies that he is the Messiah. And brothers and sisters, all of the future prophecies regarding the second coming and the establishment of his glorious kingdom, they will be brought to bear and to fruition as certain as the predictions regarding his first coming. Brothers and sisters, I want to lift you up today and edify you by saying never give up. Your faith in Christ is well placed. Okay, now let's get back to the very central idea of why Jesus Christ came in the flesh in the first place. 
Ultimately, what we're going to learn is the reason Jesus Christ came in the flesh is because we needed him to be a man so that we could have the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's interesting. There's a text that Paul writes in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, where he tangentially talks about the incarnation, but gives us some very important doctrine here. Notice what he says. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, Paul says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, what I want to do is take apart this passage a little bit. I want to begin with this idea of the fullness of time, literally the pleroma, the fullness of time. What does it mean? Remember, I mentioned that in the Old Testament, the prophets were teaching messianic doctrine, who the Messiah would be, where he would come from, and what he would do. Let's think about some of those. Who would he be? Well, we know he's going to be truly God and truly man, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. He's, yes, a son, but he's El Gabor, mighty God. Uh, We know what he would do. We know he's going to be crushed through for our iniquities. He's going to be pierced for our transgressions. And there's all sorts of things. Isaiah 35, he's going to heal the lame. The lame are going to leap like a deer, and the deaf are going to have their ears unstopped, and the blind are going to receive sight. That's Isaiah 35, and Jesus fulfills it. Why? Because he heals the sick and the infirm. Where is he going to come from? Micah 5.2 says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So there's all sorts of details, but let me ask the question, did it ever state when he would come? No. The Bible was silent as to the timing, as it is the timing of his second coming. Are you with me? But it gave us all these other details. And so what does Paul mean that in the fullness of time? What he means is that in God's sovereign and providential care of history, the very day that Christ was to come, he came. And I want you to notice that in blue, it says two important facts about the Messiah, that he was born of a woman. What's the point there? Paul's point is saying that he really was a man. Do you remember in the first century, the debate over the Christ was not whether he was God. They all admitted that. But it was docetism, dokeo, the verb. He seemed to only be a human. He wasn't really human. That was the debate. But Paul is affirming, no, he was really a human, truly God, truly man, simultaneously in one person. But notice what did he do? He was also born under the law. Under the law, the term hupo there means that he was subject to the law. But the idea was that he could perfectly obey the law as the sinless one and pay the debt for us, notice, who are also under the law. And so I want to explain that the reason ultimately Jesus came, born of a woman, born in the flesh, truly man, is that he had to do for us what we could not do for ourselves as our new representative. Our first representative, Adam, because of his sin, brought us sin, death, and hell. We needed, therefore, a new representative that through his righteousness and his atonement, his righteousness could be credited to our account. And so every single person on the planet, whether they know it or not, they need to get rid of something that they can't have, and they have to receive something that they don't have. The first thing that we have to get rid of is our sin debt. Therefore, we need atonement. And the reason why Jesus could be our atonement is he was truly a man. In fact, it says in Hebrews 4 that he was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And because he was the sinless man, he didn't have to pay for his own sin. Therefore, he could be our representative and pay for ours. When Jesus went to the cross, there was a substitution where all of God's wrath was placed upon him, the sinless one. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that the Father made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When Jesus died on the cross, he did two things for atonement. He propitiated, meaning he appeased the wrath of God, and he expiated, that is, he removed our sins, all because he could be our representative as a man. Now, not only did he atone for our sins, but remember I said we had to get rid of something, that's our sin, but we also had to receive something that we don't have, and that's righteousness. Why? Because we all fall short. But Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the law. And because that's true, his righteousness can be credited to our account so that we can stand before God. Again, Jesus had to be truly God because salvation is only of God. But he had to really be man because he had to be our new representative. 
That's why he came. The proof that Jesus accomplished these things was proven by the fact that on the third day after his bodily death, he was bodily raised from the dead. His resurrection proves all of his claims. If the prophecies don't do it, the resurrection, the empty tomb should. This Jesus ascended into the heavens where he's seated bodily at the right hand of God. From where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom, he's going to bring a kingdom for his people, but wrath and judgment upon his enemies. It's this Jesus who doesn't give just a helpful suggestion, but a command. He commands every single person to repent and believe the gospel. That's Mark 1.15. What does it mean to repent? It means to turn from sin, self, and the world, to turn from idolatry, which is any other thing other than faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That's what believing the gospel means, that you will trust upon the person and work of Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and for everlasting life. Today, under the authority of the scriptures, if you will trust in him, you have forgiveness of sins and the great promise that will never go away, never fade, the promise of eternal life, all because of the work of that son called Emmanuel, prophesied 730 years in advance, but fulfilled in one man, Jesus of Nazareth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for predictive prophecy. We thank you that in these prophecies, we can know and be sure that Jesus is the Messiah, that all of his claims are true. I do pray, Heavenly Father, there's any listening here today, listening over the internet or here, that don't know you, today would be their day, that you'd roll away the stone and they'd see Jesus is raised. I pray, Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters, that in this troubling world, and growing threats, that you would give them stamina and perseverance, that they would never give up, that they would stand firm in the faith until the last day, either when you come for us or we go to be with you. We also pray, Heavenly Father, for those that don't know you in our circles, our co-workers, family, friends. We pray, Lord, that you give us boldness, opportunity to share the gospel, and also that you would prepare their hearts for us, that you'd regenerate them so that they also may believe and have everlasting life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand, if you will, for the benediction. From Jude 24 and 25, it says, Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.